You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. The moon is full of intrigue. What is it about this glowing orb, this hunk of rock, that it reflects people's wild imaginations just as surely as it does the sun's light? Our lovely satellite has been blamed for crime sprees, shape-shifting, and and generally nutty behavior. And now that NASA has sent two spacecraft back to the moon, it's the focus of the future of space travel, with humans returning to the moon someday. Of course, how can we return when we never went, right? According to some, the whole moon landing was filmed in a studio in Arizona, one of my favorite pieces of moon mythology. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? Coming up, lunar man-bats and werewolves. But first, let's take our... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla is getting a bit pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer. Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. When vacationing brains leave their senses at home, our skeptic Phil Plate raises his eyebrows... And one brain fade that really gets Phil in a tizzy is the belief among some that the Apollo moon landings were an elaborate hoax, a global con job that involved not only NASA, but countless researchers and reporters everywhere. Phil, where did this idea come from that we didn't go to the moon? I don't remember anyone claiming that 40 years ago. Well, in fact, the crown prince of the moon hoax theory. His name was Bill Casing. He died a couple of years ago. But he claims that he's been saying this ever since Apollo. And in fact, it appears that may very well be true. He worked for a company that helped design some of the engines on the Apollo rockets. And he was he was basically a file clerk. And even then, he says, I didn't believe that we really went to the moon. Now, there's not a whole lot of documentation that says back then that, that he didn't believe in the moon landing. He does make that claim. And in fact, he has been making it for quite a few years. Well, what's the evidence that these guys offer? I mean, there's more to this than simply distrust of NASA, right? I mean, they claim there's some sort of proof. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The evidence would be good, wouldn't it? But uh, in fact, what they present is in fact a distrust of government, a distrust of NASA, a misunderstanding of science and space and physics and photography and rocketry and, and just about everything else you can imagine. What, what they say is, for evidence, if you look at the images, and this is, this is what they all say started their disbelief. They, they were big Apollo fans and then I started really examining the images. And the first thing they tend to notice is that there are no stars in the pictures in the sky of the lunar landscape. Now, 
you might expect there would be. There, there's no atmosphere on the moon, so you'd expect stars to be brighter. And in fact, the sky in the pictures is black. And when the sky is black here on Earth, it's nighttime and you see lots of stars. But the problem is, is that it's a photograph. It's not that you're standing out there and the sky is black. If you take a photograph of the night sky on Earth, you still have to take an exposure of several seconds because stars are faint. And in fact, on the moon when they were taking pictures, the sun was up. So they were taking very short exposures, 150th of a second, a 250th of a second. And at those shutter speeds, you just don't see stars, whether you're on the Earth or on the moon. So this biggest piece of evidence that these guys always trot out is ridiculously easy to show wrong. What else have they offered? Okay, so the sky's black, no stars. That's obviously just a question of exposing for the ground underneath their feet. What else? There are actually quite a few claims. If you want to start looking at the images, they say that shadows aren't parallel, but they forget about the fact that the lunar surface is not flat. And so a shadow might fall up a hill or down a hill or perspective. As the shadows move in, in parallel away from the camera, a distant object and a nearby object, the shadows don't look parallel. But again, you can see that on the Earth. I've got photographs I've taken of trees with one near me and one farther away. And because of perspective, the shadows aren't parallel. And there are a ton of things like this. The, the flag is waving even though the moon's in a vacuum in the videos. But of course, the only time you ever see the, the flag really waving is when the astronauts are holding the flagpole, trying to bury it in the ground. And as they're moving the flagpole around, the flag is moving. And there's just tons and tons of claims like this, but they get more and more ridiculous the deeper you delve into them. Well, Phil, any idea what fraction of the population believes this? Well, that's actually a little bit of a tough call. There are polls that are done on occasion. And, and the last one I've seen that was relatively reliable was over 10 years ago. And even then, you know, it really depends on the questions they ask. They can say, did NASA fake the moon landings? And then, of course, you get a very low number and you, you can ask, is it possible NASA faked some of the moon landings? Well, you know, it's possible. So the numbers range between 20 percent uh, at, at the high end, which is significant, but not huge down to about 6% at the low end. And that always makes me laugh because typically the error ranges on these polls are around 6%. So in other words, if you knocked on enough doors and asked people, are you dead? 6% of the people will say yes. So it doesn't really help your statistics any. So finally, Phil, you would say that uh, this claim that we haven't been to the moon is destined to go away in the next 10 or 20 years when we put other people on the moon and they can see the artifacts of what was left before, or maybe when we send tourists to the moon. Well, I wish it were that simple, but you know, if the conspiracy theorists could be swayed by evidence, they wouldn't have this conspiracy theory to begin with. You know, they don't believe the NASA archives. They don't believe the NASA scientists. They don't believe scientists around the world who have studied the NASA rocks brought back from the moon. And so clearly, even if you took a conspiracy theorist to the moon and said, look, the Apollo landers, they would probably claim you've drugged them or something like that. There will always be a core true believer cult out there of this. But I think eventually this theory will die except for a handful of these guys. And you know what? We can go on with our lives. And wouldn't, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> okay. Well, Phil Plate, thank you very much. And by the way, do you think I've ever been to Indianapolis? I don't know. I've, I've never been to Indianapolis, so I don't even know if it exists or not. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah Bellum over there? What a dish.
Phil Plate is the keeper of the skeptical blog BadAstronomy.com and the author most recently of Death from the Skies. Well, from refusing to believe we ever went to the moon to the belief that the moon is flowering with exotic plant and animal life. The Great Moon Hoax was a series of articles published in the New York newspaper The Sun in 1835. The headline, Great Astronomical Discoveries Lately Made by Sir John Herschel, was unremarkable given what followed, a description of fantastic living creatures that the astronomer claimed were living on our number one satellite, including such things as unicorns and bat-like humanoids. Not only did the articles convince readers that the moon was more hopping than kangaroos on a hot plate, it helped kick off purple prose, yellow journalism, and other colorful approaches to reporting the news. Today our tabloids scream that aliens have broken into Fort Knox, Bigfoot has abducted my boyfriend, and Elvis was spotted at the Tasty Freeze. But do people buy this stuff? I mean, do they pay money for it, and then do they buy it? Yep, and they did so more than 100 years ago as well, says writer Matthew Goodman in his book, The Sun and the Moon, the remarkable true account of hoaxers, showmen, dueling journalists, and lunar man-bats in 19th century New York. Lunar man-bats? Sounds like something out of a Marvel comic. What the heck are they, Matthew? Uh, Well, they're not the famous Bat Boy of the Weekly World News. These were the creations of a very different newspaper, the New York Sun, the first of the so-called penny papers, which in the summer of 1835 printed a series of six articles that claimed that life had been discovered on the moon by means of a, a supposedly powerful new telescope invented by the eminent British astronomer John Herschel and had discovered all varieties of uh, life on the moon, including unicorns and biped beavers, beavers that walked on their hind legs, and then, most astonishingly of all, most spectacularly, these lunar man-bats, four-foot-tall creatures that talked and flew and did art and built temples and apparently fornicated in public, according to the sun. And it caused a great sensation in New York in the year 1835. I can imagine it might have caused a sensation on the moon. Life on the moon, I mean, that sounds kind of crazy today, but apparently the public was slightly more gullible in 1835. I suppose that's safe to say. Well, that's right. I mean, I don't know if they were more gullible than we are today. We certainly are subject to any number of hoaxes today. But they were probably more ready to believe the idea of life on the moon in the year 1835, because at that time, it was sort of the conventional wisdom among astronomers that life did indeed exist or might well exist on the moon. This was a very common belief among some uh, very prestigious astronomers. Uh, John Herschel himself, the real John Herschel, certainly kept an open mind on the question of whether there was life on the moon. And his father, the equally eminent astronomer William Herschel, who would discover the planet Uranus, was a great believer in life on the moon and claimed at an early point in his career that he had discovered various um, structures on the moon. But these reports weren't coming from John Herschel, let alone his famous dad, Bill Herschel. I mean, they were, they were coming from some writer in New York, right? Uh, That's did... right. Well, the son claimed that they were getting this information from a Scottish scientific journal, but in point of fact, they were being written by the editor of The Sun, a really fascinating guy I've discovered by the name of Richard Adams Locke, an indirect descendant of the great philosopher John Locke, who was just writing these accounts himself. It ended up creating a tremendous sensation in New York. The Sun became 
The son was only a couple of years old. It was a kind of a small, working-class, upstart penny paper. But by the time the series was over, it had become the most widely read newspaper in the entire world, remarkably enough, on the basis of the popularity of the series of articles. The articles described an increasing complexity of landscape and life. So we begin with a field of poppies on the moon, and then we discover the mountains of the moon and the volcanoes and the forests. And then we begin to get life in various forms, starting with sheep and hairy bison. And each article gives us ever more remarkable discoveries culminating as I mentioned, in the announcement of the discovery of these intelligent creatures, the lunar man-bats. So it was kind of like a, a, a literary Flash Gordon of its time. I mean, it was, you know... Well, it was arguably the first American bit of science fiction. You, you, you certainly could argue that. It was really a remarkable literary production, beautifully produced, highly imaginative, full of uh, all kinds of very scientific-seeming nonsense, that caused, by the estimation of several contemporaneous accounts, 90% of the people of New York believed these articles. That's how authentic they seemed to be. But as it turns out, Locke had not uh, actually intended these articles to be a hoax at all, even though they turned out to be the most successful newspaper hoax in history. He had intended these articles to be a satire, and they really are in kind of the great tradition of satire going back, you know, to Swift and Defoe and so forth, he was intending to satirize the very beliefs of the religious astronomers of the time who believed that there was life not just on the moon, but on the sun and on all the planets and indeed on every heavenly body they believed uh, life could be found. That was the beginning of the mass medium, perhaps you could say. Well, it certainly was the beginning of newspapers as a mass medium in the United States. This was really the moment when America became for the first time a nation of newspaper readers. On the back of the, the success of The Sun in New York, you began to see similar penny papers begin to crop up in cities all around the country. You know, this is when the Baltimore Sun began and the Cleveland Plain Dealer, the New Orleans Times-Picayune. They all began in the 1830s and 1840s in the wake of the success of The Sun. A second important point, Matthew, the idea that it was a parody, or it was trying to make a point about science and religion. Uh, science sort of had this idea, or at least this idea was out there, and scientists embraced it, at least some of them, that, for example, Jupiter must be inhabited because it has, you know, at least four big moons and lots of small mm -hmm. ones, it turns out. And, and why would God have made the, all those moons That's if there right. wasn't somebody there to enjoy them? Uh, That's exactly right. That's exactly right. This was, if not the reigning idea of the time, certainly a very popular idea of the time, probably most cogently expressed in the work of the Scottish astronomical writer Thomas Dick, who was really very, very, his books were enormously popular at that time. He was kind of the Carl Sagan of his time um, in terms of a you know, popular astronomy writer. He was actually a theologian as well as an astronomer, and he argued that all of the heavenly bodies were inhabited, every single one of them, uh, even comets and so forth, because God, in his infinite wisdom, would not create these worlds without also creating their intelligent beings to appreciate them. And so, you know, he speculated, for instance, that the residents of comets 
were a race of astronomers because they had such a clear view of the solar system as they made you know their way across the solar system. He calculated that the population of the moon was 4.2 billion inhabitants. Um, and his work was exceedingly popular at that time, very well read. And uh, he was by no means the only person to advocate this. As I said, this was a very common idea uh, among astronomers at the time. And this is why the hoax of Locke found such fertile ground, because people were inclined to believe this idea anyway. They had been so schooled in the ideas of these religious astronomers that when the articles appeared, they, they simply believed that they were true. And Matthew, you describe all these odd stories about uh, the, the great moon hoax, also the possibility of life on the sun, sounds like a little too toasty, all taking place in 19th century New York. What was so special about New York? I mean, were selenite man bats just not considered likely in, I don't know, say Chicago? Oh, no, no. This really was a fascinating time in the history of New York. You know, this sort of incredibly exciting, noisy, rollicking place but one where people also had a certain amount of trepidation about what the future would hold. But at the same time, New York was by no means unique in its readiness to believe these stories about lunar man-bats and their ilk. I mean, this story eventually spread to newspapers all around the country. It was the most widely circulated, quote-unquote, news story of its time, so New York was by no means unique in this regard. Finally, Matthew, do you think there's any parallel with the great moon hoax and modern-day counterparts? I'm thinking now in terms of maybe UFOs or the face on Mars, the idea of a 10th planet slamming into the Earth, or the apocalyptic stories of the Mayan calendar predicting the end of the Earth in 2012. These are all, you know, current stories. You hear them all the time. I mean, are, are these direct descendants, or is this just a part of human nature? And, and you know, if the Great Moon hoax hadn't happened, these would still have happened. Uh, I, I think you're right. I think that this is, uh, you know, sort of part of our nature. You know, we want to believe in the fantastic. We want to believe in things that are greater than ourselves. And when stories come along that seem to confirm our innate prejudices or, or predispositions, we tend to believe them. We tend to want to believe them, even if it goes against what our rational minds might tell us is likely or not. You know, a number of people have said to me, well, you know, in this day and age, what with the Internet and everything, you couldn't possibly succeed with a hoax like this, which is actually true, because today all you would do is, you know, you'd send a text message to John Herschel in South Africa, and he would, you know, stoutly deny it immediately, and that would be that. But on the other hand, the Internet is certainly a very powerful carrier of hoaxes as well. You just mentioned a number of these kinds of stories. Or you could just look in the political framework and see the way that the Internet carried, you know, stories in the last election about, you know, how Barack Obama was a Muslim or Barack Obama didn't have a valid United States birth certificate and so forth. These were all hoaxes. But, you know, at the same time, on the eve of the election, 23% of Texas voters believed that Barack Obama was a Muslim. So this is an indication of the fact that we're certainly at least as gullible to hoaxes today as people were 180 years ago. All right. Well, Matthew Goodman, thank you so much for talking with me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much. 
Matthew Goodman is the author of The Sun and the Moon, the remarkable true account of hoaxers, showmen, dueling journalists, and lunar man-bats in 19th century New York. Coming up, is a full moon an excuse for bad behavior? Also, a real howler, the werewolf legend. It's skeptic check on Are We Alone? But don't take our word for it. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. It's sheer lunacy on Are We Alone? So it's only appropriate that we go to the land where people really moon over each other. Hooray for Hollywood. That's screwy ballyhooey Hollywood. We're in New York. All right, everybody. This is a reality check. Put your credulity on the table. Becoming a news item is important in Tinseltown. A headline that reads, The moon was full and nothing happened, isn't going to start tongues wagging. But as our Southern California skeptic reminds us, it's probably true. It's the Hollywood reality check. Assuming you can see it through the smog, there's going to be a full moon over Hollywood soon. And you know what that means. It means that if you wash your hands in the moonlight, your warts will go away. If you see a full moon for the first time on a Monday, it means good luck. A red moon means war. And let's not forget the big daddy. A full moon means werewolves. All right, wait a minute. Could any of those be true? And could a full moon really make people do wacky things? After all, the word lunacy comes from this belief in lunar influence on human behavior. Maybe there is some truth to it. I remember being in a Little League game one moonlit night in 1973 when a streaker ran by. The moonlight was so bright out that even after he ran off the field, you could still see his moon gliding down the street. Sure enough, everybody said, that was weird, must be a full moon. Yeah, it's true. Polls have shown that people do think the moon makes you a little nutty. Loads of people believe that emergency rooms get busier and crime rates rise during the full moon. But before you can establish a correlation between crime and the phases of the moon, you have to make some choices. You have to decide if the moon has to be completely full, which only lasts a moment, or if it can just look full to the naked eye, which lasts more like 36 hours. Also, what if it's cloudy? Does the fact that we can't see the moon still affect people's behavior? What about that? And what about the kinds of crimes? Are we looking at all crime? Misdemeanors, parking tickets, public nudity, what? These decisions about exactly what you're looking at will certainly affect the results. You'll also have to consider which day the full moon lands on each month. 
You can't blame a spike in crime on the full moon that lands on St. Patrick's Day, Halloween, or New Year's Eve. That's why you have to comb through years of statistics to get a fair picture. Fortunately, we have these statistics. Dozens of studies have looked at crime trends over many years. The police are very interested in knowing when certain crimes tend to happen for obvious reasons. So it was relatively simple to cross-reference crime statistics with the moon cycle. So what do the studies tell us? That there is no correlation between full moons and crime. None. From violent crime to traffic accidents to 911 calls, no significant relationship with the moon was found. But think about it. Why would reflected sunlight or the undetectable extra tug of the moon's gravity cause you to bear your behind to a bleacher full of baseball fans? Beats me. Then again, I guess I can see one reason a full moon might cause some trouble. Maybe before we humans had flashlights and decent streetlights, the extra light outside was a good reason to get out of the hut and run around a little. There was no Little League a thousand years ago, but there was moonlight. And I bet there were streakers. Jim Underdown is executive director for the Center for Inquiry West in Los Angeles. Now, as Jim said, according to urban myths and to legend, the moon, particularly when full, is the cratered culprit behind all sorts of crazy behavior. And perhaps none is more bizarre than causing humans to turn into... A creature with super strength and senses and a lot of hair. A werewolf. Barber's dream. But where did this idea come from anyway, that when sunlight shines on the moon, which is just a bunch of rock catapulted off the earth about four billion years ago, ordinary men, and occasionally women, morph into growling, highly irritated, hirsute hominid canis lupus. The idea of shape-shifting is as old as the hills, says June Pulliam, an English professor at Louisiana State University, where she teaches, among other subjects, the horror genre. But the tale of the werewolf, as pulled from literature and film, is actually quite modern. We got it from a series of three sources. They're all 20th century sources. The first one is Guy Endor's novel, The Werewolf of Paris. That's from 1933, and the films, Werewolf of London from 1935, and the Universal Studios film, The Wolfman from 1941. Well, my goodness, that's extremely recent. To me, there's something suggestive here of a dimly remembered uh, boogeyman from the past. I mean, wolves aren't much of a problem today, but before the modern urban lifestyle developed, perhaps wolves loomed large in many people's lives. I can hardly imagine that wolves simply came to our notice in the 20th century. Oh, that's very true. But the things that we know about the werewolf today, or we think we know about the werewolf, they all crystallized in these three texts. For instance, the idea that, you know, you have to transform only under a full moon. Well, you know, there's a French folk belief about that, but that really came together with the 1943 movie Frankenstein Meets the Werewolf. What happens under a full moon, according to uh, current uh, belief? Well, under current belief, if you're bitten by a werewolf, which is also a new idea, which we got through the Werewolf of London, a full moon can transform you. For the better? I mean, <laughs> No, it's not for the better. And actually, that starts in the 19th century when the werewolf becomes a creature of supernatural evil. All right, but, but how did the moon figure into that? I mean, was that just sort of an appurtenance to this story? I just oh, get. No. No, the moon moon comes from other folklore, and it really we really don't start hearing about the moon um, being related to 
lycanthropic transformation until about the 20th century. Then it's really starting to be very tightly connected. Now, in the traditional scheme of things, I mean, I think just about everyone has seen at least one movie where some guy who's uh, some unfortunate guy is caught out outdoors when the moon becomes full and suddenly, you know, hair's growing up on the back of his hands. I, I must say, I don't see bald guys standing around under a full moon. Maybe maybe that would help. But, <laughs> but you know, they, they get all this hair and then they presumably have turned into a wolf. Do they ever turn back? Do they just wait a month and then they become humans again? Well, that depends on which um, myth you're looking at, which mythological universe. And in a lot of them, well, you run around, you're a werewolf for a while, and then you turn back. Probably the most famous one would be the Wolfman, and Larry Talbot becomes a wolf at the full moon, and then wakes up the next morning, and lo and behold, he's human again, as if he's got a bad hangover and terrible memories of the night before. Other things, more contemporary texts, such as the film Ginger Snaps, where you have a female werewolf, the transformation actually takes an entire month. And when Ginger finally fully transforms, there's no going back. She's completely monster, and she doesn't even look like a wolf. She just looks like some hideous, horrible, gray, unrecognizable thing. When they become wolves, either overnight or if it even takes a month, I mean, what's their lifestyle thereafter? Do they do just wolf things and run around in packs with other werewolves? Or, you know, do they, do they pick on humans particularly? I mean, do they have something nefarious about their behavior? Well, again, we're going back to um, what we know from the Universal Studios films. And, you know, the werewolf just runs around and behaves the way we would like to think animals behave. They're absolute monsters, and they want to go ripping things apart for no good reason. All they want to do is destroy things. In some ways, they're far worse than animals. And some texts actually acknowledge that these creatures, they're, they're not even animals. That's a terrible slander on them. It's hard to resist the thought that this was really an allegory about perhaps political figures or something similar. Well, it has more to do with this idea that humans are fundamentally different from other animals. We're not animals. The, the nature-culture division that we have, this idea that you know the natural world is one thing and it's this terrible, untamable place, but we humans, we're far more civilized, but we always have this beast within that we're guarding against, that we have to keep from erupting. And the werewolf occurs when, you know, for whatever reason, you can't keep that beast from erupting. And in some texts, some people are going to be more susceptible to letting this beast out. I mean, sometimes it's going to be members of the working classes. Other times it's going to be members of the aristocratic class who can't suppress this beast within. I'm intrigued by the astrological connection as well, uh, the idea that uh, heavenly bodies, in this case the moon, could have some effect on us. And, of course, it's particularly well, silly. If After all, the moon is there all the time. It's just where the sun is falling on the moon that determines a full moon. I, I, I guess it's true that the during a full moon, the moon is opposite the sun, but I'm not quite sure how that works on turning you into a wolf. Well, I'm thinking that this has to do with the idea that the moon controls other things, such as the tides. And, you know, and it's said that it controls women's menstrual cycles. Well, finally, June, there seems to be an obvious parallel to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Very much so, yes, because that's about the beast within as well. This, this is just, a, in other words, a recurrent theme that just speaks to our, if you will, two-faced nature. There's the good and the evil, the yin and yang of human existence. Yes, 
And some more modern werewolf texts you're seeing the Beast Within idea played upon where the Beast Within is actually a far kinder and rational creature than the human without. Well, June Pulliam, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, I'll uh, stay indoors the next time the moon is full. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much. It's been fun talking to you. June Pulliam teaches English at Louisiana State University. Well, Seth, so you become a werewolf under a full moon. That's right. That's what they say. Now, do you know anything in astronomy that would explain how one would grow hair when they're exposed to moonlight? Well, moonlight is just reflected sunlight. There's there's no difference, actually. You can take a spectrum of moonlight and you see all the same features you see in sunlight because, after all, it's just a bunch of gray rock. Uh, it actually reflects about somewhere between 10 and 20 percent of the sunlight, so it's fairly dim. And you've never grown any hair standing under a moon? Well, I have, but uh, it turns out I was growing hair even when I wasn't standing out under the moon, <laughs> so it doesn't seem to have affected it much. And if it did, I think that there's some people who would be making money among those who are uh, lacking hair. That's right. Cure for baldness. Just Indeed. go stand under a full Indeed. moon. Indeed. Rogaine. Well, well, we're talking about the, the moon, but um, the full moon, the bright moon. But we also hear about the dark side of the moon. What is the dark side of the moon? Well, the moon has a dark side, but of course, any side could be the dark side. I mean, think of the Earth, right? Uh, Half of the Earth is dark right now, and 12 hours from now, it'll be the other half of the Earth that's dark because it's rotating, and so is the moon, of course. I mean, you can see it in the sky. You see, you know, a sliver of the moon is illuminated, and then more of the moon. Uh, People confuse the dark side with the other side. In fact, the moon has no dark side unless you consider the inside of the moon. That is perpetually dark. Now, James Underdown said earlier that um, the full moon only lasts a moment. What did he mean by that? Yeah, well, that's sort of an interesting point because people think of the full moon, oh, it's a full moon tonight, and they see this big orange moon rising above the horizon and gets brighter and it's overhead and it sets and it still looks like a full moon. And they figure, well, it must have been a full moon all day. And, you know, that's a matter of definition. But strictly speaking, the moon is only full when the moon and the sun are opposite directions from where you are, right? That the the moon is getting full sunlight. And so if it's perfectly full moon for you now, as soon as the moon moves a little bit and the earth moves a little and so forth, the situation changes and it's not exactly full anymore. And even if it's full for you right now, it's not full for somebody on the other side of the country because they're looking at the moon from a slightly different angle. So in that sense, strictly speaking, he's right. Full moon only lasts for a moment. A moment. What is a moment in astronomical terms? Well, you know, it's the accuracy of the measurements. Probably it's a few seconds, I would gather. And the other myth about the moon, when we're talking about moon myths, that the moon is made out of cheese. Do you have any idea where this story came from? I don't. No, you'll have to ask the American Dairy Association. No, I really don't know. And of course, if it is cheese, it's very dry cheese because the moon is very dry. Very Maybe dry it's indeed. because it looks, it has the holes in it and so forth. It looks a little bit like Swiss cheese. Swiss cheese, yeah. Well, one has to ask whether this idea that it was made of cheese predates uh, the discovery of craters, in other words, uh, and that was about 1600. So uh, I don't know. We'll have to look that up. But it'd have to post-date herded animals. Uh, Yes, but I I think we had herded animals before 1600. At least I heard we did. (laughs) 
Well, now, Seth, on the subject of the moon, you actually created a a film, didn't you, with moon as the theme? Is that right? Well, yes, back in my movie-making days. And they began when I was 11 years old, so uh, they go way, way back. The first couple of films we made were just, you know, imitation science fiction films that we had seen in the theater. When I say we, it was a buddy of mine by the name of Buzz, and he and I were making these very short, very bad films. And we realized after about the second film that although we had very serious intent, people were laughing at these films. So we decided if they're going to laugh, we're going to make comedies. And our third film was called The Crater Creatures, and it was intended to be a comedy. What was the plot of The Crater Creatures? Yeah, all I remember now is that there was, in fact, a rocket ship sent into space. And at some point, they're cleaning up the uh, the control cabin, the control room, of the bridge, I guess you would say now, of this rocket ship. And they, they were painting, and there was a dark red can of paint and it got spilled on the captain, and, and he looked at his face in the mirror, and he said, Maroon, Maroon, we're marooned in space. That's... So those puns started way, way back with well, you. Well, I, way, way back. I, I don't know what you mean. This this was, however, before the invention of the motion picture. <laughs> but the crater in this case was the crater of the moon, so yes, this was a film yes, about the yes. moon. Yeah, we made lots of, we, we made a, a, a much more ambitious film many years later in high school, called The Teenage Monster Blob from Outer Space, which I was. And so we, we, we follow these space themes, yes, indeed. Okay, but did that monster blob come from the moon? No, it didn't. It was very unclear where it came from. It was just you know, a bunch of light that uh, we reflected on the walls. And I do recall a story there. We had six pounds of Play-Doh, and, uh, and indeed it would run around, but because we could only afford six pounds, it never got bigger after it ate things. <laughs> and um, was this film a great success? Who did you show it to? Well, we showed it to anybody who would watch it. We had a party for the premiere in uh, suburban Washington. We invited 50 people. And all I remember is that even though this film was only 20 minutes long... Well, I hope our audience sticks around for what's coming up in this show. It's sheer lunacy on Are We Alone? Up next, real adventures in space travel. A lot happens every day. Cut through some of the noise by listening to What's New with Wired, a podcast that provides in-depth coverage on technology and culture. With new episodes released every weekday, you can catch up on all the major events you missed, from AI developments to business updates to new scientific theories. It helps you make sense of what's happening in the world. Plus, each episode is usually pretty short. You can easily squeeze it in on your way to work or during a lunch break. So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. But why some say the moon? Why choose this as our goal? And they may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Fly me to the moon. Let me play among the stars. And let me see what spring is like on Jupiter and Mars. Well, we've heard some of the high-flying and often highly imaginary legends about the moon. So let's come down to Earth with some real space missions. And that means, of course, leaving Earth. The recent launch of two NASA lunar spacecraft signaled the beginning of the return of humans to the moon. But as we heard earlier in the show, what about those who believe we never went in the first place? Well, that'll come as a surprise to lunar scientist Paul Spudis, who has spent a lot of lab time studying the lunar rocks returned to Earth by the astronauts. But will that convince the conspiracy theorists? 
Seth met up with Paul Spudis at his workplace, the Lunar and Planetary Institute in Houston, Texas. Paul, here at the Lunar and Planetary Institute, you study the moon, and you personally have studied a lot of moon rocks. So when you go to a cocktail party and people say, you know, we didn't really go to the moon, it was all just done in a studio, what do you say? There's a lot of ways to respond to that question. My feeling is that that from a scientific point of view, there's a lot of good evidence that you can lay out that we went to the moon. Uh, The moon rocks are very different than the rocks we find on the Earth. They don't have uh, hydrated minerals, for example. Virtually any rock from the Earth has minerals that contain uh, water and present in the crystal structure. Moon rocks have none of that. It's absolutely absent. They have unique properties. They're very old, typical moon rocks. The youngest moon rocks are as old as the oldest rocks on the Earth. So you can measure their ages and determine the fact that these rocks are, are quite different than the rocks on the Earth. They have a unique chemical signature. Uh, specifically, things like the iron-manganese ratio is unique to lunar rocks. It's also different from all known meteorites as well. So wherever these rocks come from, they came from a source that wasn't on this planet, and they came from a source that isn't commonly represented in most of the meteorite groups. So they must have come from somewhere else, and the somewhere else, the easiest thing to believe is that they came from the moon. But of course, most of the public hasn't seen the moon rocks. They've only read about them, and they may say, well, yes, but that, that, that's all a fiction. These are, you know, just rocks that they've cooked somehow to get rid of uh, the hydrates or done something to them. If, if they haven't seen the moon rocks themselves or just don't believe you, is there anything you can tell them on the basis of what they have seen for why they should believe? The astronauts did take photographs of the lunar surface from lunar orbit. And in the last three Apollo missions, they took these th- these very high-resolution pan camera images. And in those images that were taken after the lunar module landed on the moon, you can see the lunar module on the lunar surface. And what's more, you can see the experiment package that the astronauts set up on the lunar surface. You can see the lunar rover, and you can see the lunar rover tracks where they disturb the surface. So those exist. They're, ac- they're accessible to anyone. You can find them online. If you're going to argue that, in fact, that data has been faked, that that was specifically created as part of the conspiracy, again, you can't really argue against that. If someone wants to believe in a conspiracy, they can believe in a conspiracy. Is there some way we can see any artifact of our presence on the moon here from Earth now that you, that you could aim a telescope at the moon and see something we've left behind? The, the things that we left on the moon, the artifacts and pieces and equipment that we left on the moon, uh, cannot be seen with the most powerful telescope that we have on the Earth. And in fact, they can barely be seen with spacecraft that are actually orbiting the moon, that are looking at the moon up close. But then again, you could always argue, well, that was delivered by robotic spacecraft. We didn't actually send people there. So no matter what you do, no matter what evidence you produce, if it's part of the conspiracy, it can be argued away. So I assume that that argument would also apply to these corner reflectors. I think they're just little systems of mirrors that allow us to bounce laser beams off the moon to measure the distance to the moon, that the argument would be, yes, but they were put there robotically. Uh, That would be the argument. And and in fact, the Soviets did exactly that. On one of their lunar rovers, the Lunokhod, they actually put a laser reflector on it. And that's been used by uh, that community for a long time. You've uh, been funded by NASA. Uh, Do you think that the space agency would be capable of such a massive deception? No. As a matter of fact, that this this is what's so amusing to me about the whole conspiracy idea is that it requires a level of competence that not only is not seen in government, but is not seen in any sphere of human endeavor that I've ever encountered. So in other words, uh, the idea that the same government that runs the IRS and the Postal Service could fake a landing on the moon, that seems beyond the pale. It certainly does to me. Paul Spudis, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Paul Spudis is a lunar scientist at the Lunar and Planetary Institute in Houston. Okay. I hope that will clear your mind about hoaxed space missions. You know, there have been so many forays into space since Apollo, it's, for me, a bit tough to keep them all straight. But SETI Institute scientist Cynthia Phillips manages to do so in her new book, Space Exploration for Dummies. Despite the title, the book's not meant for the slow-witted or even for the ventriloquist puppet. It's just intended to be accessible so that everyone can learn the facts about space travel, including how to get into space in the first place. There's all sorts of different ways that spacecraft can get power. Everything from traditional rockets to um, ways that you provide power on board the spacecraft from solar panels and some more exciting and exotic techniques like uh, solar sails and um, ion propulsion. But what about spacecraft that are going out, you know, say to Jupiter, Saturn or beyond? I mean, sunlight isn't very, uh, it's pretty weak out there. That's true, and that there's actually a lot of controversy over that. When you send a space probe way out into the far reaches of the solar system, you need some kind of a power source that's that's very long-lasting and very stable. And unfortunately, those end up being um, being things called radiothermal isotope generators, or RTGs, that basically use nuclear materials. So they use radioactive materials that decay over time, and they decay at a known rate. And this provides energy that po- helps to power the spacecraft. And these things are great. They're very stable. They've been used in all sorts of different space probes. But the problem is when the general public hears that NASA is launching radioactive materials into space, they get really worried and freaked out. <laughs> you know, there are thousands of things in orbit. I mean, forgetting the things that have been launched beyond orbit, to the moon, to the planets, wherever, even beyond that. There are thousands of things in orbit. Are, are most of them looking outward? Are most of them looking back toward the Earth? Almost everything in orbit around the Earth is actually looking down. And you that seems kind of surprising because you think, oh, there's a great view out there. You should be looking at the stars. But but no, in fact, most of the satellites in orbit are things like communication satellites that take your phone call from point A and send it up into space and then back down to point B back here on the Earth. You know, many young people today, of course, were not alive during the Apollo era. To me, it just seems like yesterday's news. I, I remember going to the moon and all that. But you do cover the Apollo mission in some detail in this book. I I notice you even include a sidebar about playing golf on the moon in case that's something of relevance to the readers. That's true. There's actually um, some of the lighter side of lunar exploration. And and it's really exciting um, for someone like me who also kind of, I was actually born after the last person left the moon. So there has been nobody on the moon in my lifetime to, to date myself a bit, which is really kind of a depressing thought. But if you look back at some of the um, the old Apollo footage and pictures, um, there's there's websites where you can get transcripts of everything that was said on the moon. Um, the Apollo Surface Journal is one. You can get videos of the, the TV feeds that were made. You can hear the real audio that was given by the astronauts. And it's just fascinating. Um, when I was researching the book, this was one of my favorite things to do. I would just get completely sidetracked by, you know, reading everything that the Apollo 10 crew said on the surface or something like that. It's really interesting to hear, especially... After Apollo 11, um, so after the first moon landing, people were really, really worried. I would say that was a very tense mission. It all worked fine. By Apollo 12, we'd done it once. And so that was a much more relaxed mission. And so if you look at the footage from that, it's it's very, very different. So the personalities of the astronauts were different. But also just the level of stress of, you know, oh, my God, am I actually going to get home? was a lot better because it had been done once. There was a precedent. So you see the Apollo 12 astronauts, they're bouncing around, they're singing. It was a much more kind of fun and relaxed mission, I think, than Apollo 11 was. Now, that's news to me. Uh, What was news to you? What was the most surprising thing you encountered while writing this book? Oh, you know, that's hard to say. Some of the old, there, there are some amazing missions, the unmanned missions done by the former Soviet Union, 
just really sort of at the dawn of the space age. So in the 1960s, they had a couple of amazing missions. One of their their great successes were these robotic Lunacod missions. These were actually rovers that went to the moon. They, they didn't have any people on them to drive them. They were completely robotic. But some of these rovers actually drove around for huge distances over the moon. Um, and they were remote controlled from back here on Earth. They took pictures and sent them back. They actually also had um, robotic sample returns from the moon, the, some couple of the Luna missions from the Soviet Union. And what I think is really cool is that even though the Soviet Union wasn't successful in any of its Mars missions, unfortunately, some of their proposed Mars landers would have been really cool as well. For example, one of their Mars landers actually had a little rover on it that was on a tether, and it would have basically been kind of pulled around the surface on skis. It would have kind of you know, driven around a bit. If that had actually worked, it would have predated uh, the first rover that NASA sent to Mars in the mid-1990s. The Soviet one would have predated that by something like 25 years, which is pretty amazing. Do you cover the subject of space tourism? Because there is a direct uh, direct link there to the reader, I would think, if, if, if they're wealthy enough. Yes, that's true. There's, there's a whole chapter on space tourism. And a number of people have, you know, just private citizens have basically bought a, a very expensive ticket, but they bought a ticket into space. They've gone and they've trained with their astronauts and they've gone, they've gone to the International Space Station. One of the more depressing things, I thought, is that basically with the scheduled end of the space shuttle program, there's going to be a period of a number of years when the um, only access to the International Space Station will be via the Soyuz capsules that are launched by the Russian Space Agency. Previously, there's been spare seats on some of these Soyuz missions because the space station has been able to take cargo and, and crew up to the International Space Station. So some of these seats on Soyuz missions have been sold to space tourists. But once the space shuttle is retired, those Soyuz seats are going to become really, really precious. That'll be the only way to get astronauts up to the space station. And so probably the likelihood of more space tourists in the future is going to be much lower. There, there are talks by various space tourism companies about, about basically buying an entire Soyuz mission, perhaps. Um, and there's also private rocket companies that want to have their own space planes and other ways to get into space. Finally, Cynthia, uh, there was a survey about five years ago of the American public in which they found that, in fact, the majority of the public was not that keen on space, and they, they, they thought that NASA actually might be overfunded. Now, those of us who work in astronomy or space science don't have that impression at all, but that was the opinion of the populace. You talk a little bit about what space is good for. What would be the argument you would make to somebody who thought that we're spending too much on space? Well, if you look at the percentage of the national budget that's spent on NASA, it's tiny. You know, we're talking something really, really small. And it's really hard to overstate the importance of, of space exploration. There's kind of two different facets. One is the technical side. Many of the technological revolutions of the last 50 years have come from the space program. Everything from the need for you know, faster and smaller computers to um, global positioning systems that help your car figure out where you are so you don't get lost on the way to the store. All of, the, all of that kind of stuff has come directly out of the space program. And so there's a whole chapter on sort of technological spinoffs in this book. But more importantly, Space travel is inspirational, and it's really hard to overstate how exciting space travel is for people like children. Just the idea that maybe one day they can be an astronaut has has inspired generations of kids to consider science as a career. And, you know, so maybe all of those kids won't actually become astronauts, but it's gotten them thinking. It's gotten them thinking about something that's greater than the Earth, that's greater than just their own little worldview. And so I really think that having a space program, it's something for all of us to look up to, both literally and figuratively. Cynthia Phillips, thanks so very much. Thank you, Seth. 
Cynthia Phillips is a principal investigator at the SETI Institute. And that's it for our show. Thanks to Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance for their help in producing it. Also to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and the SETI Institute, where understanding life on this planet and the possibility of it elsewhere means learning to think critically. It's been sheer lunacy on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on Are We Alone? But don't take our word for it. Do take his, however. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. You don't need to be a scientist to hold that lamp. Look for evidence. Keep on thinking. Trimberger.org.